0: Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes and current TV, movies that we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently released a new bonus episode on Ted Lasso and the Jason Segel and Harrison Ford's psychiatric comedy Shrinking, and as we record this, a roundtable discussion of our favorite revenge movies is on the way. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow.
2: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us!
0: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. You guys, I am so used to, at this point, seeing movies revolving around action, uh, just like dominating the box office and the cultural conversation, that it was really startling for me to watch this week's movies, uh, to just kind of step back and, and watch two films that are just about people talking to each other not like working out their issues via big dramatic fights, as in our last several pairings, not navigating massive political or cultural conflicts, just kind of talking to each other. Frankly, the past decade plus has been so centered on violent disagreement and taking sides and turning every aspect of societal interaction into a high stakes conflict that I had literally kind of forgotten that people just talk to strangers and enjoy that sometimes.
3: I, I hate it i just kind of like yelling at people
0: <laughs> well you are kind of uh, famously yourself, yelling Tasha. at people on the internet
3: <laughs> that's true that is true i i've gotten i have slipped i've gotten back into my bad habits of uh, of uh being uh being an angry reply guy
4: how's your friend marjorie taylor green these days uh Scott? <laughs> the, she, she, she I, doing okay
3: she i have blah i have i, I have my <laughs> limits
1: okay
0: have the two of you ever spent a long day just walking through a, a city together, talking out your issues? Maybe that could fix things.
1: Oh, I don't
3: know about that. <laughs> uh, the, 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 one, one of us would be carrying a gun, I guess. I that would kind of make it spicy, I guess.
0: I am definitely not going to try to guess which one of you that would be. Jennifer. Uh, if you want to tell us about this week's two, uh, much more romantic than the image that Scott just gave us, uh, talkathons.
1: Sure. When Rain Allen Miller's directorial debut, Rye Lane, made a splash at this year's Sundance Film Festival, it sounded pretty familiar. Two young people fresh off difficult breakups meet at an art show, start talking, walk around a city together and get to know each other better, and start gently falling for each other in a kind of low stakes romantic drama that also doubles as a tour of some specific London neighborhoods. We immediately thought of Richard Linklater's 1995 romance Before Sunrise, which eventually became the first movie in a loose trilogy following characters played by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, who meet on a cross-continental European train and impulsively decide to spend a day and night walking around Vienna together. In both these films, there are some small tensions around heartbreak and longing, but the focus is really on the attraction between these two young strangers and how they navigate the space between their first meeting and deciding they want more. It's two walk and talk movies heading in the direction of romance.
0: So, this week we'll start in Vienna as strangers on a train take most of a 24 hour stretch to become lovers in a park. Or do they? That's certainly something to talk about. Then we'll head to the South Bank of London for strangers at a show who help each other find a way past their own dead relationships and onto a lively new one. More after this break. <music>
2: All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just gonna haunt me the rest of my life. I have no idea what your situation is, but I feel like we have some kind of a connection, right? Yeah, me too. Great. So listen, here's the deal, this is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. We just got into Vienna today and we're looking for something fun to do. Is pregnancy English? Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, Could we speak German for a change?
1: Now I'm gonna call my best friend in Paris, who I'm supposed to have lunch with in eight hours. Okay?
2: Okay.
1: Pick up the phone. Uh, hello? I don't think I'm gonna be able to make it for lunch today, I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train and I got off with him in Vienna,
2: we're still there. Are you crazy? Probably.
0: These days, Richard Linklater is known for an awful lot of different things, from his experiments with rotoscope-style animation in A Scanner Darkly, Waking Life, and Apollo 10 1⁄2, to the bold, ambitious 11-year production of Boyhood, Following a Child from Boyhood to Early Adulthood. Add in a wide variety of oddball, highly specific projects, from the comparatively mainstream comedy school of rock, to Fast Food Nation, a narrative film based on a nonfiction book, to the unlikely, based-on-a-true-story, Jack Black comedy Bernie, And you have a director who wears a whole lot of different hats and has produced one of the most idiosyncratic and unusual filmographies in American cinema. Back in 1995, though, when Before Sunrise came out, Linklater looked like much more of a single-idea filmmaker. He was the scene guy, the indie writer-director whose movies were known for being kind of shapeless and low-key, but for capturing, with unerring focus and a kind of amiable good humor, the feel and experience of a specific subsection of culture. In 1990's Slacker, it was boho culture in Austin, Texas, expressed through a series of wandering conversations between various misfits and hipsters. In 1993's Dazed and Confused, based on Linklater's own teenage experience, it was about different subcultures at an Austin high school on the last day before graduation. These movies were shaggy, inviting ride-alongs, movies that asked the audience to just come hang out in a very specific place and time with people they might have never encountered in a film before. Before a Sunrise does the same sort of thing. It's just a series of conversations between two people moving around a city, encountering artistes looking for money, and a bickering couple on the last leg of their relationship, actors looking for an audience, and late-night philosophers living out their own truths in their own scenes. It's something of a companion piece to Slacker, except that the various boho and hipster conversations mostly happen in untranslated German, as Linklater glances around Vienna through the eyes of a couple of tourists who mostly see it as a backdrop for their own budding romance. It's a more formalistic and directed story than Linklater had told previously, but it still has that familiar shape that made Slacker and Dazed and Confused distinctive. It's exploring subcultures and scenes as two people walk among them without ever stopping for long to dive in deeper. Julie Delby plays Celine, a French 20-something on a cross-European train trip, when she meets shaggy American Jesse, played by Ethan Hawke, a similarly aged young man who's fresh off a disappointing trip and a bad breakup. They start talking, and before long, he's urged her to jump off the train and spend the day with him in Vienna, seeing the sights and waiting out the hours before his plane back to America in the morning. Most of the rest of the film is a rolling conversation as they play verbal games, get to know each other, unpack each other's backstories, eventually kiss, and then each try to decide whether they want to go further and how much they want to reveal or share with each other. Before long, before sunrise, in fact, they're both a little in love and they're both a little morose about the fact that they'll have to separate soon, with no guarantee that they'll ever see each other again, or that their connection would have the same spark that it does under the particularly rarefied and romantic conditions they've established for themselves as two young, unattached, beautiful people in a gorgeous foreign city, completely separated from their normal lives, but with a strict deadline hanging over their heads. They both know their relationship is evanescent which makes it all the more exciting, but they also think that they both might want it to be more, which lets them feel threatened. And they both wonder if maybe they'd ruin everything if they actually tried to find a way to stay together. All of these ideas are things that they discuss as they wander Vienna, as the city around them turns from a sunny daylit tourist spot to a woozy after-hours space where barflies, flies, scene-sters, and locals take over the increasingly deserted streets. Linklater isn't diving deep into Viennese culture here. He's giving us a sampler of lives on display, creating a complicated and colorful backdrop that for the most part, Jesse and Celine seem to see as set dressing for their own little drama. But Linklater hints at a lot more going on. From that opening bickering couple on the train to the various people having intent German language conversations, he implies that the central tête-à-tête is just one of thousands or millions of other little interpersonal dramas in this world, all carried out oblivious of each other, each one treating the others as a backdrop and background scenery. And then when Jesse and Celine finally have to move on, he takes a moment to go back to some of the places they visited to establish that yes, these landmarks and buildings and spaces and restaurants are still all there once they've moved on their lives might have changed, but the city around them hasn't, and it has not noticed their absence. There's a real melancholy to that, but there's a comfort as well. This kind of story, Linklater implies, is going to play out again and again, with the details different every time, but with the same kind of heart as young lovers play with infatuation as if they're the first to ever discover it every single time. Two later Linklater films, 2004's Before Sunset and 2013's Before Midnight, reunited Hawk and Delpy as these same two characters, again engaging in long walk and talks, but at different phases of their lives. These check-ins took some of the ambiguity out of Before Sunrise, but they lost none of the melancholy and none of the sense of scene specificity that's marked so much of Linklater's career, and that he went on to express in such radically different forms. Some of his later movies are broad comedies, some are domestic dramas, and some are sharp political satire, but none of them ever lost that sense that slacker conveyed so well. Linklater has become known for a lot of different things, as I said, but it always comes back to caring about how people talk to each other, how they focus in on their personal dramas, and how they don't always see outside the reach of their own arms, and how a goal or a relationship, an argument or a moment can become the most fascinating and important thing in the world for just a little while before you move on to another scene another conversation, even another love. Everybody changes scenes throughout their lives, and everybody moves from one backdrop to another. But sometimes, when you're embedded in a moment, it seems like the only moment that matters. Maybe even the only moment that there ever was or ever should be.
4: Families have a lot going on.
2: for a television show. Some friends of mine are these cable access producers. Do you know what that is? Cable access? Um, I don't know, anybody can produce a show real cheap and they have to put it on, right? Mm -hmm. And I have this idea for this show that would last 24 hours a day for a year straight, right? What you do is you get uh, 365 people from uh, cities all over the world to do these 24 hour documents of real time, right? Capturing life as it's lived. You know, it would start with uh, a guy waking up in the morning and, uh, you know, taking a long shower, um, eating a little breakfast, making a little coffee, you know, and uh, reading the paper.
1: Uh, Wait, wait. All those mundane, boring things everybody has to do every day of their fucking life. (laughs)
2: I was going to say the poetry of day-to-day life, but, you know, you say the way you say it, I'll say the way I
0: say it. So, uh, Scott, before we started uh, recording, you were talking about Richard Linklater and time. And I'd, I'd kind of like to hear more about that because, boy, when I first saw this movie, I think I just saw a couple of people talking and trying to figure out whether they wanted to have sex. And coming back to this movie after so much time... I cannot believe how much is going on here in Uh terms of like Linklater's ideas. This this movie was just such a different movie for me in 1995 than it is now. And part of that is understanding more about how Linklater sees time. So I'd I'd love to hear you kick us off with that.
3: Well, I mean, you know, and then, of course, that experience, your experience is informed by your by time, your time, your experiences in life, Uh, you know, the fact that you've seen the two follow-up films to this, and understand more about Celine and Jesse and where they are in their lives. But time is is a really a, a central theme in Linklater's work. I mean, you see it in Day- Days Confused, both Days of Confused and. Before Sunrise take place basically in the same kind of a time frame. Both are both sort of dusk to dawn movies. Boyhood is obviously tracking changes over over time. There's a lot of, uh, it's just something that interests him about, about the way people b- behave over certain stretches, whether those stretches of time are very compact as they are here or whether whether you're you're following somebody over what 11 years as boys something like that that's an important uh, point here and i think and i think your approach that my approach to this movie in all three of these movies really changes over time i I feel like i've grown up like perfectly in time with these films (laughs) um you know i i saw before sunrise at a sneak preview at my college so and i'm the same age as uh Ethan Hawke, he's actually a, maybe a year, I guess he's a year older than I am. And so um, my understanding of what, of the possibilities of romance and the way that people of that age might do something this impulsive and might engage with each other in this way, uh, it, it felt very much in tune with how I was feeling at the time. And then of course, when you catch up with them later, you can kind of see a, an evolution of that thinking of just like, okay, uh, people who are a little more bruised by experience, but still have, you know, Still have that kind of feeling for each other, and then even later when when gloves are off, when they know each other every day, and and uh, a lot of the tensions that I think we can see in before sunrise kind of come out. That's in, in before midnight, um, because these are too complicated, opinionated, difficult, and you know contentious folks and so so i think when you're when you're out of this sort of magical world of you know 12 hours or so of their life or half day this film takes place in and they have to kind of deal with each other as people every day it's a much different situation but i think the seeds are sort of planted here anyway i'm getting ahead of myself um, <laughs> uh, i'm getting I'm, already, I'm getting into the sequels but um
1: i definitely understand the impulse to immediately start talking about the sequels because i after rewatching before sunrise, like I immediately put (laughs) on. Before sunset, and was only able. The only reason I didn't get uh, to before midnight is because it was not uh, immediately available streaming to me. This film is just such a compelling introduction to these characters, and the knowledge that you can spend more time with them at, at, at different points of their lives—like it's—it's so appealing, you know.
4: No, I, I don't want to dwell on the sequels either, but I guess we are. <laughs> uh, but like from the beginning, uh, when you see the couple arguing on the train. And the exchange looks like, can you believe these people? And like, if you know what's coming, you know they have arguments in their future too that might be just as ugly as this. If you know, I don't speak German, so I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> but, uh, um, but it also remind me of that uh, of the scene in Two for the Road. When the 2 main characters first meet and they see some couples, you know, just sitting next to each other and, and one turns to the other, like what can kind of people live that way? Like married people, and then you see them turn into married people over the course. This that, the same thing kind of plays out over three films here, but but um, in terms of time, I, I needed some time to like this movie. I really didn't care for it the first time I saw it, and I think it's because and I I'll say like right away. I love him now, but Ethan yeah. Hawke really rubbed me the wrong way. And in some ways, and and, and this is echoes something I wrote about Ethan Hawke once, but like I, I was never, certainly never as handsome or as charming as him, but but some of the things that I found annoying about him, I now realize were who I was at that time, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's, it's sort of, you know, pretentious no-at-all elements of him that, that 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 were wavy, probably too close to, to who I, I was, and of course am not anything like that now. No. Um, <laughs> shed that like so many snakeskins. Uh, Wait, are you but, uh, are you
0: now the version of him from before midnight because i'm oh, not sure no. that's better
4: <laughs> well yeah i don't want to i don't i don't want to say that but but like but now like you know even if the sequels didn't exist with the benefit of time having passed i see these characters in a different perspective i i, I realize where they were in their life and i realize how momentary that phase of your life is. Like I I was a URL pass person, interrail technically, because I was studying abroad and and I think I knew it then, but I really appreciate it now that You know the times in your life when you can be standing in a train station in 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 Switzerland and say, "Well, do I want to go to Spain or do I want to go to Norway?" (laughs) You know, these are (laughs) this is not something that happens more than once in your life. You know, this 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 sort of carefree existence, uh, you know, responsibilities start to pile in, and like they're they're both in this kind of you know. Halo of youth, and and uh, you know, with with uh, not that they haven't had troubles or heartbreaks and things in their lives, but but the things that that keep you from just being able to get off in Vienna uh, and and spend the day with someone you just met, just aren't present in their lives yet
0: they're they're in a place of unattachment and i think they're both in very liminal spaces and they're both very aware of it they're between things and i think that part of what makes this movie so interesting and so appealing especially to people who are now older than uh, 23 years old as uh, as all of us are is that we can see what it would have felt like to be in that moment, you know, between things, between cities, between legs of a journey, between relationships, and be able to just hit the pause button almost, almost, you know, they, they step aside out of their journeys, out of their trips, and just kind of step into the space where they're the only really real things to each other. And there's such an appeal to that. And at the same time, they can both hear the clock ticking the entire time they're there. You know, they can't, they can step sort of to the side of time, but not out of time altogether to bring it back to what Scott was saying about time. And it hangs over them for the whole movie. They spend so much of their time together sort of Trying either subconsciously or very consciously, overtly discussing it, trying to pretend that they're not on deadline, that this isn't all going to come to an end, but it just it hangs over the movie so evocatively and i i find it pretty fascinating uh that said i still think jesse's kind of a pill keith i i i find him charmingly young and unfinished now but Mm -hmm. i I do still think he's a bit of a pill
3: he's pretentious yeah i mean like there's there i i think there i i kind of like that about the movie that that in all of them is that is i think these are these are not the easiest people to get to click with in certain ways i think there's a i mean there's a there's a level of pretentiousness and, and prickliness and kind of like you know contentious i mean they're they're they're, they're difficult and and uh you know I, I and i i can see you know at the time i also shared a certain amount of resentment toward ethan hawk that's that that you know i've kind of come to look at him and that character differently over over time but uh he especially is kind of um imperfect i would say and and uh and i I like that kind of about the movie
1: yeah and i mean the the film i think acknowledges it like i don't think there's any attempts on the film's part to suggest that you know these are wholly aspirational people like they're they're connection i think is is what's aspirational about them but you know like jesse gets repeatedly dinged for you know his his american tendencies not not speaking the language and <laughs> you know sort of the 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 american tourist uh stereotype and you know there's several scenes where you see Celine become like briefly disenchanted with him like the fortune teller and one of my favorite little moments on this rewatch was after the the poet the street poet scene um where they, they get their poem and Jesse starts saying something like you know he probably just uh you know like <laughs> has a poem ready that he puts films in and he like kind of catches himself and he's like hmm. wait No, never mind. And it's like you see a little moment of personal growth there in him, like recognizing his own kind of knee jerk cynicism in the context of this incredibly romantic (laughs) scenario and learning and growing a little bit in in that moment. And I I liked the film acknowledging that about him.
4: He's also probably right. But but I think part of growing (laughs) up is learning what you don't have to express every single thought in your head.
0: Yeah, I uh, both of you I think uh are being more generous than I would be. I I didn't see a a guy that had um like learned a life lesson and uh was was growing up in that moment. I saw a guy that had previously said something just as cynical um to this girl that he's interested in and had kind of gotten verbally smacked for it a little bit mm. and then saw that he was about to do it again and realized he was getting in his own way and
1: interfering with the possibility of getting laid like well that's I, the cynical reading Tasha and Keith course. and I have the romantic <laughs> have reading. Notice that, that I'm scene? a cynic.
0: Has it has it ever come up before? <laughs> Maybe that's why I don't I don't love Jesse the way I, I tend to love Celine in this movie is like I see him as sort of perpetually on the make. Like, I, I feel like there's a lot more hesitation and self curation with him than with her. And she comes across to me as pretty heart on the sleeve to the point where. Like, if she has a character flaw, for me, it's maybe like her indecisiveness or going back and forth. It it does feel a little cruel at the end for uh, the two of them to be lying there and for her to say, I've decided I don't want to have sex. Well, okay, maybe I do want to have sex. No, no, I don't. I mean... There is a romanticism to having sex together on the green, having shared a bottle of purloined wine out of purloined glasses, and there's a romanticism to deciding not to because it'll ruin everything. I don't know how much romanticism there is in, okay, let's, wait, wait, no. Well, no, no, no let's let's go ahead. Nope, 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 nope. Like, I, I could feel his frustration and the fact that he's polite about it and doesn't pressure her and doesn't whine takes him up many, many notches. From the the notches he dropped, in my estimation, over the movie at at his navigation of other things, but are there big character flaws to Celine that I'm just
4: not seeing to equal his? I mean, she's French. I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, but that I, that I mean to, that she's she challenges everything he says, which I think this guy needs. You know, but I, but I, I also feel like you can kind of see. Where it's going to become maybe an issue down the line when you're you're settled into a relationship and you don't want everything you say challenged, you know, but but, uh, but no, i i I was being glib there. um uh, uh she's 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 trying they're both you know I, I love them both. though a thing you know, they're both flawed characters, but i I want to see them like I want to see them kiss and be happy together. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right?
3: I like I like I like the having I think like them having sex is good. I I
4: didn't even realize it, you know I didn't realize that was a topic uh, it's of a discussion good, it's good for like, them. did did they or did they not is actually a topic of discussion which I never really considered I just right. assumed they did Yeah, right?
1: I mean right? it's answered in before sunset like, yeah, oh, but right. right like, I, like that I that's very specifically whole, yeah. do
0: not want to uh I, as, as far as I'm concerned the other T movies are still extra textual at this point mm-hmm. oh
3: I love it tasha you're going up yeah, <laughs> you you're, you're staying out. within the lines I, I wasn't even able to stay in the within the lines of the first question you asked so now 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 you're shutting them out I am I pulling
0: it. the full Tobias here like I so this this was gonna be like one of the last questions I asked was how you feel about how the sequels Expand and change the story. I found the sequels both really fascinating, each in their own time. And I, I do want to sit down now and rewatch them. You know, all, all as a whole together. But at the time when each of them came out, I also sort of felt like they they ruined the purity of this mo- movie a little bit. Hmm. Like, I think Even that there's after an ambiguity. Them, I, thought, I thought the
1: idea
3: was like, oh no and then it was like <laughs> oh yeah this is awesome like cuz i think i mean to me to me the second one is is my favorite of the three but like i love them i love all three and i love th- what they express about the nature of relationships period not just this relationship at those specific times in in a, in a person's life is just so full of insight and sort of richness uh, i just you know uh, watching this film again the thing i really like about it is is it is so mid 20s in terms of like your ideas about romance and, and, and impulsiveness and just just the idea that they're not just into each other but just into the idea of what they're doing like just that just the notion of getting off a train together and spending this day and having this kind of spontaneous romance just that in itself just beyond who they are as as, as humans and how they're connecting as humans is is you know part of it is part of that feeling that they're trying to capture and it's such a twenty something thing to do Uh, just as just as when we catch them later and before sunset after they've had multiple relationships and a bad marriage and and these feelings that they that they still have for each other after all this time you know that's a different feeling too and that's romantic and it its own way, but it affects the tone, and, and it's because they're older and they're wiser, and they're they've been sort of bruised and damaged a bit by romance, but not completely. That the flame has not completely gone out, and it, you know. And then of course the 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 third film, there that's a real, a real relationship, and a real real relationships have all kinds of issues, especially when you've got these these two people who are tough, you know, are tough, uh, you know, are, are gonna be the types of people who are gonna get into conflict a little bit. So I, I love, I think the film is all all three films together just have such insight into these two characters specifically but also just generally how people are in with really in in terms of uh, romance and in love at that at those particular junctures of their their lives
0: yeah i don't know i i think that they're all doing interesting things but at the same time the first movie just trucks so much in the I said in the keynote, in the evanescence of this moment. And the other two films just completely steal that. And I don't, I kind of love them as individual portraits, but I don't know that I love them as a, a triptych and just in terms of what the existence of the other two films do to this one.
4: I get that because I, I, I really respect that this film ends without an answer that you, you, you have to decide for yourself. And like, you know, in, in a way, the second one ruins that, but it's also, it's also my favorite of them as well. Uh, I find that that film, you know, just, you know, it's got a, it's got a tension in it and a, and, a, and a, and a, like a, a momentum to it. And, and the final scene is so, so, so wonderful. And I like, I I, I love before midnight too, but I, I also, in some I kind of respect it, as much as I love it, because, you know, it takes these characters places you don't want to really see them going after the end of Before Sunrise, which is, you know, but it's it's perfectly in keeping with, with the ending of that movie, which is going to create problems for uh, Jesse, well, for both of them. Um, uh, and you can't not address that, but you know to see this couple fight and have these tensions, and and Jesse perhaps not behaved like the best husband, in, in, in some ways, you know, you almost kind of don't want to know that. It just as like you almost kind of don't want to know whether or not uh, they show up six months later. But uh, but I'm, I'm I'm glad they all exist.
0: I, I have the weirdest feeling that the other two movies are fanfic. They just, they happen <laughs> to be fanfic created by the same people, like the same three people, because, uh, Hawk and, and Delpy both contributed like greatly to these movies, apparently. Like they, they apparently shaped these characters and these scripts, uh, a, a great deal. So, you know, it's, it's a three part kind of team up in terms of telling these stories. But the second two movies still feel like fanfic to me that like, are very specific choices about like, here's one direction the story could go. And to me, it just it can't quite stand up to Before Sunrise's open endedness where you can imagine like a 1000 different futures for these people.
4: I had the opposite feeling watching this, although I know it's it's not correct. But but uh, uh, when uh, Celine goes on about you know when, he, when he's t- talking to Selene, and talking like you know imagine yourself ten years from now, twenty years from now, it's like did they know? <laughs> are, they, are, they, are they are they planning? <laughs> Obviously, you can retrofit the movies you make afterward to 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 fulfill those promises. But then also the idea of like you know, you know, twenty years from now when you are someone who's in your marriage isn't happy, but you know that that's you know, the the sort of troubled marriage they're going to end up is going to be with each other. I, I don't, you know, it's almost like, you know, it, it, there's a master plan or maybe, you know, maybe just unconsciously they, they knew where they had to take these characters eventually.
1: I mean, extra textualism, uh, fanfic discussion aside, the, I guess the reason I even... Broached before sunset was kind of in reaction to what you were saying about uh, Celine in this one, Tasha, and her being sort of the less like complicated, more I guess likable for for lack of a better word. And I think that sunset kind of turns that dynamic a little bit. It it, it definitely like kind of changes the quote unquote power dynamic by like having Celine being on her home turf um, and some other things that I I won't spoil I guess <laughs> relating to the events of, of before sunrise so I, I I think like there is value in considering the the arc of these characters across these three films because like this is a short movie you know we don't spend a whole lot of time with these characters We don't spend a whole lot of time with each other and we only get again a very Brief transitory moment with them. Um, and speaking of transitory moments, we we uh, need to acknowledge the Georges Seurat exhibit that they never got to to see because it was in the following week. But and, and Celine she says uh, Seurat's human figures are always so transitory, which it just you know <laughs> it, like if in case there was any doubt of what what this film's like preoccupation is, like it's pretty much put into a thesis statement in that very brief scene. But I think, you know, the fact that we do now have these multiple moments with these characters, like, I think it's special and kind of unique in film to be able to kind of reflect back on the original, uh, like, iteration of these characters. I don't want to discount that.
0: I certainly don't want to discount it in that, yeah, it is really unique. Uh, It is... Just remarkable for them to have kept going back to the same story. I Maybe I can just accept them best as, you know, three different stories that can take place in three different universes, almost, if you want, in terms of... Just uh, you know, people at very different phases of their lives telling very different stories. I, I agree with you that uh the the sequels definitely get away from that feeling of like he's the richer and more complicated character and she's like the the simpler and and happier and more surfacey character. You know, she she definitely takes on a lot more of an edge in the the later movies. So maybe that's a fix. But uh Getting away from all of that, one of the things I wanted to touch on here was just the sheer amount of, you know, unsubtitled German in this movie. I actually used, like, Google's Audio Translate uh, to... Kind of eavesdrop in on some of these conversations and figure out what they were about, and it was kind of like a fun and enlightening. Now was extra
1: textual? <laughs> I, I mean, literally you, extra text. If you spoke German, uh, none of this would be yeah. a mystery to you. This, which, is the, this is the tar conversation all over again. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: there we go. That first conversation is the the fight on the train is kind of fascinating to me because it begins with the man. Is he's reading the newspaper and he says something to the effect, and and Google Translate is extremely rough, especially the uh, attempt at audio translation. But he says something to the effect of, "Well, this isn't going to interest you, but there's an article about you in the newspaper. It says that 70,000 women in this country are addicted to alcohol, and you're one of them." (laughs) Uh, And she snaps at him that you know she's not an an addict, and he's like continues to needle her, and she says this isn't necessary. And then when she slaps the newspaper out of his hand, it's because she's she's sick of him being a jerk. And when she walks away, she's like, I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. And he goes after her and she says, I don't want you to come with me. I don't want you around me. And that context, like I kind of am ha- a sucker for sequences in movies where you have to sort of glean or guess for yourself what's going on. But then you, you can also find out what's going on and have that experience, that, that thought experiment as like a completely different and, and separate set of information. And it's the same thing with uh, the conversations in the cafe where you've got all of those little separate conversations. Google Translate was not very good at picking up or, or translating those. But like, you know, one is a personal conversation and one's a political conversation. And one is the, these two guys talking over cards about their, uh, their holiday. And it's just really interesting to be further in on what I think is just being presented almost from Jesse's point of view as somebody who doesn't speak the language. I guess they, they, he doesn't speak German at all, and she says she doesn't speak it very well. But I, I'm just sort of fascinated. It's one thing to have them drift by people who are speaking German and have it be part of just the scene of the city that, that they don't understand and aren't relating to. But Linklater takes them out of the picture entirely and drops us in on these conversations the way he went on a conversation in Slacker to just have us observe, like, these two people, these two very specific people having a conversation that we know tonally is – like you know, a, a bohemian conversation that might be about art, but is definitely like young people being energized about something and and two old men like having a very quiet and thoughtful conversation. And I wonder what you all make of like that particular approach in terms of let's walk away from our protagonists and just be in this scene without them and and observe without them even being observers in the scene
3: that's slacker right i mean mm-hmm. like remember the very opening se- remember the opening scene of slacker with link ladder himself Do you remember like with that conversation he has with the cat with the cab driver where he's talking about you know different realities kind of spinning off right mm-hmm. and you know just little you know i think that's kind of that effect that he's that he's going for well, he goes for in slacker i mean that sets up slacker and then it sets up um it it kind of explains the rationale here of just like okay and and it's something you also touched on in your keynote is just like okay there are a lot of different stories going on against this backdrop a lot you know and, and so he is just giving us this suggestion of a bunch of them at once and so he can kind of go into this restaurant before we ever settle on celine and jesse and just give us like a sampler of all of these different realities that are that are spinning off into into this in, into the same timeline and in and, 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 and all these different ways. I think it's just something that that interests him, that it that is that, uh, you know, to kind of get you outside of the uh, universe that is being created by these two specific characters and acknowledge that there are other realities that are being created uh, by by you know, different people as well.
1: I think there's, and it, I, I definitely agree with that read on it. I think there's also maybe a, a undercurrent happening here of like, I think the film has an interest in communication outside of direct, like one-on-one conversation, which is kind of funny in a film that is like so built around this direct one-on-one conversation. But, you know, we, we also have these elements of music and poetry and People talking in a language we don't understand, and yet we understand, like, we get the gist of what is happening, you know? And it all kind of feels part of this, like, greater tapestry of human communication and how there's more to it than just I say something, then you respond, and then I respond, and then you respond, and, you know, which is. To be clear, like another huge delight of this film, you know that them doing that, but the, in the background, I think there's a suggestion that like that's not all there is to human communication.
0: That is a really cool thought, and it immediately takes me to the
1: the belly dancer that they see and how Ooh, she
0: one, yeah. explains that uh, this is a birth dance. And Jesse seems kind of unengaged with it. Like he he drops money into the, the the hat and says something about you know everything, everything that's good or everything that's fun. I forget the exact words. Uh, costs money. Like he's sort of irked at the fact that the world costs money. And then she's telling him a little more about like this birth ritual. But in a very non-specific, like, she's not really talking about any specific culture kind of way. And he's just very clearly a tourist to it. Neither of them have, like, an intimate or personal connection to this form of art. She knows a little bit more about it than he does, but, uh, you know, neither of them seem to know a whole lot. And that kind of, like, drive-by tourism aspect of what she is describing as, like, an incredibly intimate and powerful and primal connection among people that she doesn't really know anything about and, and can't connect anything to is a pretty fascinating, like evocation of what you're talking about.
1: And that is also maybe a segue into talking about maybe my favorite scene of the whole film, which is the listening booth. No, I was about to mention that
3: one as well. The body language boy. in that.
1: Yeah. Which has no dialogue between them and just, you know, just them listening to this song, you know, kind of imploring, come, come here, come here. And, watching it again i was just so struck by by the choreography of their glances at each other and never quite catching each other's eye and like cuz you have the sense that like if they did lock eyes this is where the kiss would have happened cuz a kiss happens like the next scene pretty much i think or, or very soon after like they're they're cruising toward it at that point <laughs> and they can't stop looking at each other but they can't quite Connect in that moment the way that they would need to for you know this this moment to happen. Uh, but mainly, I just want to know like how that. Scene happens like on a filmmaking level, like how they, how they, like I said, how they choreographed that with them never quite catching each other's eyes. Like, was Link Later off camera saying, Okay, now you look, now you look, now you look, or what? You know, maybe that's on an audio commentary somewhere, but there's uh,
4: actually a, uh, they talk about it. There's a very short oral history of the film New York Times did a couple years ago. mm -hmm. And that scene was spontaneous in the sense that they had, they knew the lyric to the song, but they'd never heard it before. So that was just kind of them in the moment experiencing that as those, as as characters and and I, and uh yeah I think it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful scene and I was very happy to find out cuz I feared the worst uh, that record store is still 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 kicking still you can oh, still go wow. go to, go to uh, alt ad new or whatever it's pronounced uh, how you pronounce it uh in uh, if you go to Vienna which I would if I <laughs> ever got to Vienna
3: The other thing I think it gets to is just is something more basic which is that it's it's the most awkward thing in the world to to listen to music with someone, <laughs> you know, just like, <laughs> hey, 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 listen, hey, listen to the song. Let's all just stand here having some kind of a reaction to whatever it is we're listening to. That's never it's never not a little bit awkward. And then the fact that it is sort of, you know, a, the type of music that is sort of engaging with the feelings they might be having makes it in a way all the all the more. You know just dis- uh, you know discomforting but uh, it's a lovely scene for sure and, and, and an example just of 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 the film getting body language right in addition to language language i mean there's like like the, the staging of the choreography of of the film the way the the, the way they get closer as it goes along in, ter- in terms of their their bodies is just so thoughtful as as well and and uh, romantic and all that stuff
0: there's also just that feeling of, you know, they, they have never been in such a small space together before. Like, they're suddenly very yeah. constricted. It doesn't feel that much bigger than a phone booth. And it, there's a feeling of neither of them quite knows where to put their hands, let alone their eyes. And then this move, music is so sexually suggestive. At the very beginning, it kind of feels like either one of them might just kind of break out into titters. Uh, There's a look that passes across Jesse's face in particular, that makes it look like he's about to like, say something Mm -hmm. snide about this music, and then sort of catches himself. And it it kind of feels like they're both maybe on the verge of laughter at, at various points in there. And they're both maybe on the verge of being embarrassed. And they're both maybe on the verge of puncturing the moment. So they're not laughing or embarrassed but they're also maybe a little turned on. And the, that little eye dance that they do is just such a great expression of like, all of these things flitting through their heads. I wanted to specifically ask about favorite scenes because this movie is, you know, as, as much as Slacker is, just a series of vignettes with very different tones and very different outcomes. Uh, I have a favorite of my own, but mm-hmm. Genevieve gave us hers. Uh, do the, the rest of you have like specific favorite sequences?
3: I Definitely. I mean, the fake phone conversations, I mean, that, that, that's the <laughs> best scene in the movie to me that like, the, the two of them in the restaurant hmm. uh, pretending like they're calling, calling uh, their friends and, and uh, that, you know, the other, the, I, I mean, it's funny, it's flirty, it's, and they're able to say how they feel. I mean, just, just, you know, in a way that they could never do it if they didn't have that device, you know, I mean, to, to they wouldn't be able to say the things that they feel that directly if if they weren't you know talking to a friend if it wasn't staged that way and i just find that so beautiful uh and and also very funny i mean just like you know just julie delpy <laughs> affect the accent of an american dude you know i just like i mean it's just wonderful it's just a it's
1: wonderful, sexy. wonderful scene like like my, like, yeah. like they do not need to hold the phone that close to their lips and like play yeah. with their lip the whole time <laughs> you yeah, know,
4: you, yeah especially know Julie Delpy doing. definitely <laughs> knows what she's
0: doing. That is unequivocally my favorite. Uh, I'm a little glad you called it out, and I'm a little uh, mad that you called it out first. But <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I think it's unquestionably, for me, the best scene in the movie. Because... He's the one that introduces the the question game early on in the movie. And he asks her a question and she gives him like a full recounting. And then she asks him a question and he gives her a one word answer. And she's <laughs> uh-huh. she's mad because he's not playing the game right. And she calls him on it and there's a little bit of tension. And then that phone sequence is the game that she calls. And he does fully play along. And you can see that he's kind of embarrassed but you can also see that he's kind of flattered by the the truths that she tells him during her fake phone call. And then when she calls on him to do the same, like, you can see him being squirmy and awkward about being sincere about it. But he goes ahead and does it anyway. Like, he he pushes past that discomfort. The discomfort with the game, the discomfort with the fake phone thing. Like, at one point, you see him forget that he's supposed to have a his hand being a fake phone. And then he suddenly remembers and and does it again. That's one of my favorite little moments in the movie. There's so much going on again in their facial expressions and their body language in that sequence, as they kind of do that, that little dance of how much am I going to reveal? How much of me can I safely show you? And won't it feel good if I if I show you more of myself and I'm accepted, but I'm still scared? Like I, I love that that dance, like throughout the movie, but especially in that scene.
4: I was really taken with the cemetery scene mm. this time around and and you know these are young people that you know Celine Celine had mortality on her mind for a while and and you know this that is you know comes out here uh the moment where she realizes that she's older than than the girl that she that was her age when she died and when she first saw her tombstone uh, is really touching but I think it's also kind of a recognition that, you know, sort of be not just a recognition of own mortality, but the recognition is what we've been talking about all along, which is like these moments pass and, and they're this night is this night and, and, and it won't ever be the same again. And I do really love, you know, kind of related what you're talking about at the beginning with the ending of the movie where they, they cut to all the places they've been and the places still that are still there and, and, and they're not. And there's something kind of profound about, about the way that's presented.
1: Just like Syrah said, or painted, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> yeah,
4: sure. Yeah, I mean, Sirrah is one of the. When you think of, you know, uh, I was thinking about something that's also in that New York Times thing, where where Linklater talked about how he's kind of, you know, kind of gladiated and overloaded with with of the moment pop culture references. That's a that's a cultural uh, reference. Uh, but it's not really a whole lot in terms of like you know things, conversations or or even the music that grounds it in, in 1994, which is interesting because and confused is so much about capturing a specific time, and now it certainly looks like 1994, 1995 uh, to, to to us. But but it is also there's also kind of a timeless quality in in, in that. Uh, these are two people having a variation of a conversation they could have had, you know, twenty years in the past, twenty years in the future, or you know, or and, and so you know, and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, this isn't a pop culture reference by any means, but I think it kind of speaks to what what you're saying is. There's just like a really brief moment that struck me this time was when Jesse mentions he has a dog and Celine is surprised, like like like, oh, and it's it's like this moment of like a really banal like the example of the sort of like kind of surface level thing that you would talk about meeting a person for the first time, you know, but they didn't even really touch on it because they're so they're connecting over the big things, the deep things, you know, there's not like, they don't know what each other do, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, who their friends are, they just dude, you know, like, there's this acknowledgement that like, the way that they're connecting is deeper and timeless, like you say, you know, they're listening to a song that neither of them has ever heard before, but it's not really connected to anyone like time period or trend or anything, you know, and I feel like, Straw being kind of like the main reference point of of this film kind of speaks to its, I guess, maybe disinterest in those more like immediate uh, of the moment interactions.
4: Jenny, you, you bring up the dog uh, <laughs> reminds me of something I was thinking about. Uh, like there's, there's a reference to Jesse's sister. It's like, I don't have the technical know how to do this and and i would just screw it up if i tried someone should do a, a before wiki like you know, <laughs> all the references all the connections yeah. like you know uh um i don't know i would definitely would spend some time on that uh I, i'm 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 throwing it out in the universe hopefully someone will, will pick it up are you sure that there isn't one because there does I seem looked. to be a wiki for everything i didn't see i didn't find one and, and like there should be
0: part of that response to the the idea of him having a dog is just a little bit of a surprise you know they don't talk about their parents really either Mm. the only relationships they talk about are, are you know they're over they're people that they aren't attached to anymore a dog is a commitment you know a dog is something to go back to and back for as opposed to you know anything else that they've mentioned which is just sort of like kind of You know, you have to have parents because you have to come from somewhere, but they don't talk about parents in a way that would suggest needing to get back to them or see them again. They don't talk about anybody in their lives as more than like a, a vague cloud of I have a friend So like a dog implies something that you care about emotionally. That's the outside of the little sphere they've created for themselves. And it kind of feels like that's, that's the surprise there is like, wait, you've, you've emotionally committed to something (laughs) that hasn't come up yet.
2: Hmm.
0: But all that said, the, the timelessness of this movie, I feel is just one of its eternal appeals. Like again, I feel like the first time I saw this movie I didn't really get what was going on with that final montage of places that they'd been, it just seemed sort of trite and sentimental to me to be like, Oh, like the, the way that you would say like, Oh, here's the place where we had our first kiss. And here's the place where we had our first dinner together. Like these are romantic moments that mean something only to you and aren't really part of anybody else's world. But this time I just really saw a reminder that this city has been around for centuries and will be around, hopefully, for centuries after they're gone. It just sort of feels like a reminder of like how, what little impact this moment had on the world and how timeless all of what they're experiencing is. And given that we started this conversation about uh, talking about time, it just feels like ending the uh, the movie and probably the conversation in this this place of reminding us of how timeless a city like Vienna is. It just I don't know. It seems very suitable. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say about Before Sunrise when we bring it into conversation with Rylaine. Lane. In the meantime, would love to hear your thoughts on Before Sunrise, on the existence of timelessness, on how important it is to have a dog, and anything else that you'd like to discuss around this movie or the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share responses with us and with other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we're recording this episode, they've just come out with a two-hour monster podcast about the books that they want to see adapted into movies, a topic that is truly near and dear to my adaptation-obsessed heart. Their guest on that episode is Kristen Lopez, author of But Have You Read the Book?, a new resource delving into 52 books that inspired great movies. This could not possibly be more up my alley, and I cannot wait to read it. As to our podcast, here's some interesting feedback on our pairing of Rocky Three and Creed Three that we cut down from a much longer letter.
1: Genevieve, can you share this one with us? Sure. Julius writes, I think Rocky Three has more problematic racial politics than was presented in the episode, and that its politics are a bit of an amplification of the racial politics of Rocky and Rocky II. In Rocky and Rocky II, Rocky Balboa is a meatball of a white fighter surrounded by a white trainer, a white manager, well, manager of sorts, and Polly, and a white girlfriend. He is pitted against Apollo Creed, a black fighter surrounded by a mostly black team that gets even more black between the movies. In subtle terms, the subtext of the two movies is about the struggles of the non-successful white community against the successful black community. This was written about as early as 1978 by Michael Gallant's. In Rocky 3, Clubber Lane is coded as the quote-unquote bad type of black man, while Apollo Creed becomes the quote-unquote good type of black man. In Rocky 3, Apollo is three years out from his last fight and uses that as his excuse not to fight Clubber even though Carl, thus Apollo, is still swole as hell and seemingly in good fighting condition. The good black man, Apollo, teaches Rocky how to fight using black techniques so that Rocky can take down the bad black man, Clubber, who is the wrong type of black fighter, mouthy, entitled, and arrogant. Apollo's redemption arc is completed by the passing on of the American boxer shorts that Apollo wore in the first Rockies charity exhibition match, but not in Rocky II. The American boxer shorts are key because they present an iconography that will extend into the Cold War propaganda satire Rocky IV that is overtly America versus Evil Russia. If the American flags in Rocky IV are extensions of Rocky's symbolic representation of Cold War America, then the American flag shorts in Rocky III are a symbolic representation of Rocky as White America. This is contrasted with Clubber's shorts that are jet black with a white waistband and stripes, an inversion of Rocky's white and red shorts in the first Rocky film. Clubber's first confrontation with Rocky uses black power staples like Politics Man and This Country Wants to Keep Me Down while wearing earrings styled after American Indians. And his final fight in stark black shorts completes the symbolic image of Clubber being representative of the underrepresented communities demanding their shot at success. This is such a threat to the current establishment that Rocky doesn't gracefully retire like Apollo, but fights back to keep Clubber in his place. Where one could more easily read Rocky and Rocky II as just a story of a fighter without the racial undertones, they become harder to dismiss in Rocky III, especially read using the light of the heavily overt symbolism in Rocky IV
0: well okay to start with uh, i refuse to read rocky in the light of a movie that hadn't been made yet because you know it, it, much as with uh, the conversation about before sunrise like yeah each um movie can be read in the light of a movie that was made later but you can't say that it was made at the time with the intention of uh, things that were uncovered in a movie that was made later so I, I, I really think that the symbolism of the, the shorts here is important. And I particularly like that observation, uh, but I definitely don't want to take this movie any certain way because of something that a later movie did with similar symbolism.
3: Well, I mean, no, but at the same time, I mean, the, uh, you know, you can, you can see it as a, as a pattern, you know, of attitudes, you know, that have been that start with the original Rocky and kind of extend out through the rest of the f- film so I can I, I I I'm okay with that I, I think it's a good letter I, I it's, there's a lot to oh, think about sure. here in Rocky 3 when when Rocky goes to train in Apollo's you know gym and in his neighborhood and it just the coding of that place made me uncomfortable you know made me uncomfortable e- even though I feel like the the film is generally it has its heart in the right place it felt like the type of 80s you know, black neighborhood that kind of informed in a very insidious way to white Americans, what black culture was like. And uh, you know, it's, it's a hard thing. I don't know if the film really transcends that in the way I would want it to, though I, th- though I felt like the discussion that we did have over Rocky three with, with, with Matt did kind of introduce a little more sophistication than I would given the film credit for. So there's a, there's a lot to kind of mull over with the, with these movies for sure.
0: And I mean, we did talk about the complications of the, you know, the racial politics here. Like, I, I, I don't think that we gave it a pass. I think that to the degree that it doesn't bother me as much as it could, it's because I think that this movie does some kind of clumsy things with race, but there are signals that they're trying to to be aware of it and that they're trying to be more progressive than maybe the era allowed or like their own cultural understanding allowed. Like the fact that that Polly is coded as the bad white guy because he's racist, you know, because he he says these things that he just takes for granted about like black men and black neighborhoods and black culture. And the movie demonizes him for it. The movie makes it very clear that he's both in the wrong and just kind of an inferior person in general for having these attitudes. Like everybody is just sort of disgusted with him. Yeah, uh, but he's, and so he's I, still kind of good
3: old Polly, you know, the mm-hmm. guy, the guy, the guy who kind of hangs out.
0: We
4: had to go to back around. to the same question: is like why? Why is Polly still? <laughs> why is Polly still hanging around. What's Polly bringing to the table here? Um, yeah, loyalty. I think that the, the movie does have some like
0: pretty racially like clumsy and or questionable aspects but i also think that to some degree i just don't know how intended they were as opposed to it being a product of its time where the filmmakers were consciously trying to fight against what they saw as racial stereotyping and we're still you know living in a world where something that looked progressive back then looks regressive now
4: to me, it kind of plays like a, a well-meaning film that kind of puts its foot in it because it doesn't quite—it doesn't quite know what it's saying, or, or it might be saying quite what it thinks it's saying. I mean, the the, the gym scene is is kind of a more benign version of of the National Lampoon. Uh, we'll stop in in, uh, in St. Louis and have our car hubcap stolen <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> moment.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's very very difficult to not put a foot wrong when discussing racial politics in America. It's just really really hard to to do it right and uh, the people who made this film maybe are not the best people to have uh you know solved the problem to have solved the conundrum and uh, come out with like, <laughs> the perfect Mr. statement Sloan
4: solved racism for us that was so cool i mean he did he did in the cold war with, with rocky four so you know uh we have yeah, Rio, thank that goodness a lot. he was
0: able to just like come along with his wisdom and fix racism Well, again, we don't want to dismiss this letter because it's very thoughtful and it's very thorough. And uh, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you still feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Rye Lane, a movie about two different people on a very different walk and talk in a different European city with different stakes entirely, but just as much charm. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, Try not to be the only man on an island with 99 women. You'll end up with 99 kids and then get eaten alive.